Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Uh, please uh, do take your seats. We're getting ready to begin our uh, final morning panel uh, here at the uh, 2015 Cato Surveillance Conference. Um, our next panel uh, is uh, focused on the uh, all-important oversight of the intelligence community uh, as uh, nervous as we become about uh, how they are monitoring us. It is some consolation to know that someone is monitoring them. Uh, among others, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, whose uh, uh, extraordinarily thorough investigations of both surveillance under Section 702 and uh, Section 215, in particular the uh, now uh, infamous uh, bulk telephone metadata collection program, uh, were I think extraordinarily influential in the debate that played out, uh, provided enormous amounts of new information for the public and for wonks like uh, me to pour over uh, concerning, uh, concerning the activities of those agencies and uh, the legal justification or lack thereof for their activities. Uh, and to interview uh, two members of that board, uh, we have, uh, as an illustration, I think, of how much has changed in the last two years, uh, Jenna McLaughlin, who is a, a previously a reporter at Mother Jones and now uh, reports on intelligence issues for The Intercept, which uh, is a news entity that essentially grew out of the Snowden disclosures, was launched by uh, Glenn Greenwald and Pierre Amidyar in the aftermath uh, of the disclosures as he uh, left The Guardian. Uh, so uh, really, I think, uh, an illustration of the interesting times in which we live, uh, a, a formerly quiescent and now extraordinarily active and robust oversight entity, uh, and a reporter from a publication that did not exist uh, at the time we first began holding conferences on surveillance issues. I'm very pleased to turn it over to Jenna McLaughlin. interesting that it is me up here from The Intercept that would be interviewing both of these um, honorable people from the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Um, and as you mentioned, the, the PCLOB is uh, an independent agency within the executive branch created in 2007, sort of tasked with the role of looking at the issues of terrorism and privacy at the same time and um, conducting these incredibly extensive uh, reports and research into the different programs uh, that happen under that clause. Um, so to my left is David Medine. Um, he is the only full-time member of PCLOB and he operates as chairman. Um, he has worked on privacy issues from uh, finances to the internet at the SEC, the uh, FTC, Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, in the private firm, and he also advised the White House. And uh, to my right is Judge Patricia Wald, who was appointed in 2012. Uh, she served for two decades as a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals here in D.C., uh, for five of them as the chief judge, and was the first woman to do that. Um, she also served on the Iraq Intelligence Commission investigating <coughs> uh, weapons of mass destruction and the invasion in 2003. And um, she hails from Connecticut, as do I. <laughs> so, fun fact. Um, so, I'd like to do this sort of a little bit chronologically uh, with your work. I know that there's a lot to dig into, many pages uh, that you both have participated in, and uh, there I would like to start with Section 215. Um, so PCLUB concluded in January 2014 in its 238-page report that the NSA's bulk collection program, which operated for four years before the agency actually sought authorization um, for what it was doing under the law um, essentially sort of warped the definition of the word relevant and assumed powers that it wasn't actually granted when it swept up millions of telephone data records belonging to um, a large amount of Americans. Um, and it recommended essentially that the program should end. So I'd love to ask both of you, um, how did you see those recommendations played out when you first issued the report? And do you think that the different messages issued, although some of them varied, um, by the president, Congress, or the courts may have been different absent your work? Um, well, let me first start off and, and say, uh, Pat, the trouble of giving a disclaimer, which is that uh, our views um, today don't necessarily represent the views of the board or the other board members. Um, but with that, um, uh, as, as Becky alluded to earlier, um, uh, the four of the board members had been confirmed and took office in August 2012. Um, I was confirmed in May of 2013 and started the first week in June uh, on a Monday when we had two detailees, um, no office, no email, and no website. On, that was on Monday. On Thursday, the Snowden leaks occurred. Also no staff. And no staff. <laughs> uh, and so we had to decide as a board, were we going to be part of uh, this uh, event or not? 
Um, and we asked to be briefed um, on uh, uh, the Snowden disclosures, um, and then a couple of weeks later met with the president in the Situation Room, and, and he asked us, along with 13 members of the Senate, to conduct an inquiry into both 215 and 702. And so we spent uh, basically from June until January uh, when we issued our report on 215, um, and we looked at it from really three perspectives. One is, is it legal, is it constitutional, and is it good policy? Um, and as was indicated earlier, our legal analysis concluded for a number of reasons, including relevance and lack of relevance for collecting all this information, uh, that the program uh, did not meet legal standards. In fact, you couldn't, as was mentioned earlier, tell from the face of 215 that it was authorizing this extensive program. Uh, on the constitutional side, um, and the previous panels alluded to Smith v. Maryland, and, and we acknowledge that that's the current law and that the program uh, uh, followed that law. Um, but then we also looked at something else, which is the uh, policy aspects, which is really, is this an effective program? And the government, when the leaks occurred, uh, indicated there were about a dozen or 13 success stories in 215. And one of the advantages our board has is we have because of our clearances, we can have access to original materials. Um, and our staff investigated each of these thir 13 instances and found that in none of them was a terrorist plot thwarted. But we looked at a number of other metrics as well and overall concluded that the program had very limited efficacy. Um, at the same time, when you're gathering millions of phone records, uh, even, even metadata, uh, uh, it has tremendous impact on privacy and civil liberties. Who are people calling? Are they calling the press? As whistleblowers, are they calling religious figures, political leaders, um, uh, medical professionals? Uh, and so we looked at the balance between efficacy um, and the privacy and civil liberties impact and ultimately concluded that in this case, uh, the balance um, was out of whack and that the program should be discontinued and instead requests should be made to providers on an individual basis. Um, and we're very pleased that while the president disagreed with our um, legal analysis, and that's one of the things that makes us independent, is we can disagree with the president, even though we're in the executive branch. And he ultimately agreed with our policy analysis. Um, the Second Circuit agreed with our legal analysis. And then fortunately, a few months ago, Congress agreed with the policy conclusions and legislatively um, ended the program. Uh, and take, that takes effect in a month. And so, so our, our headline recommendation, which is to discontinue the program, uh, we're very pleased that ultimately uh, that was adopted by really all three branches of the government. Right, absolutely. Um, well, the only thing I'd add to that was that um, before David came in, uh, he came in a year later, or almost a year later than the rest of us, we, the four part-time board members, uh, together with one or two people who had been generously detailed from an intelligence agency since we didn't have the legal authority under the statute to hire anybody on our own, we had stumbled is probably the wrong word, but let's just say we had happened in a footnote in a public report upon uh, evidence that there was such a program going on. Uh, we, and we were beginning to ask to be briefed on that program when the whole Snowden thing fell like a whatever, and we were, uh, as it were, requested by both uh, the uh, White House and uh, by a large number of Congress people to uh, investigate it. Um, and the one thing I, I, I'd like to add, only in addition to David's, is that among our recommendations, and we haven't talked about it, although it came in inferentially in the first panel today, is we made some, I think, may turn out to be some of our most important recommendations about changing the FISA court and making uh, available a pool of outside the, intellect outside the intelligence community lawyers with uh, super clearances, et cetera, to be called upon to come in and give the other side. Because having been a judge for 20 years on an appellate court myself, I was all too aware of the fact that you really need to hear both sides of the question. I mean, you can sit, the old joke on the Court of Appeals was you sit down with the appellant's brief and you read it and you say, oh boy, they got it right. You know, that's really terrific. Uh, that's where we go. Then you sit down and you read the uh, respondent's brief, and you say, oh my god, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, how does this... And the notion that you could have a court deciding these kinds of issues without 
any of that kind of input. And here I have to do a little mea culpa. I actually was in the Justice Department in the legislative branch in 1978 when the original FISA was uh, enacted. Of course, at that time, you only had Title I, and you also had a, a much less, much more primitive technology, as the prior uh, people have said. So we thought we're doing great, because at that point, there was going to be no review. And we thought, oh, we've got a court in there. We've got a court in there. Of course, as time showed us, and certainly the 215 episode, where there had been, was it 13, 14 uh, decisions by FISA courts uh, without ever an opinion going into the issues at all. So I think that the, our recommendations actually went a bit further than the Freedom Act recommendations. But I think the essence of getting that pool out there and as I understand that there's already been one assignment. Um, and I'm, hopefully there will be many more to follow. And the, also the act provides for keeping some kind of statistical um, record of how many and what happens. Yeah, I wanted to just add that uh, even though this may seem like a somewhat technical recommendation that's been adopted to have an advocate appear in the FISA court and challenge the government, I think it may actually have tremendous long-term significance because programs like 215 uh, should not have been adopted if there had been a vigorous legal discussion before the judge. I mean, we had presented the legal arguments in our, in our report, but those had never been presented in the context uh, of the FISA court. And so going forward, uh, I think it's going to be healthy to have that kind of process. And also, um, um, the judge was on the appellate court. There were only two appellate court decisions from the FISA judge over all these years. And years. there's obviously some rigor in having appellate review, intermediate review, and ultimately Supreme Court review. And, and under the Freedom Act, there's at least an opportunity. We would have had a slightly greater opportunity, but an opportunity for appeals to the Court of Appeals and even to the Supreme Court uh, to get some rulings on these important issues. Right, absolutely. And actually, you just read my mind. My next question was going to be about, um, oh, that's no problem. It, it leads in nicely, um, that the board recommended that Amici, uh, sort of friends of the court, get to weigh in on um, matters that FISA considers. And um, I actually was going to mention, too, the uh, first Amici that was so, uh, appointed was uh, Preston Burton, who's a uh, criminal defense attorney. He's famous for defending accused spies in the past, um, including some famous clients like Monica Lewinsky. And I was going to ask you specifically, Judge Wald, how you think um, this benefits the court to have that other perspective, both te technically and legally, though a technical amici hasn't been appointed yet. Um, and I'm also curious, since you sort of answered that already, um, do you think that this will really make a big difference in the way that FISC operates, because sometimes it's been labeled as a rubber stamp? Um, or do you also think that it just might give people more confidence that, that someone is in there speaking well, for the other side? I have every hope that it will make some difference. But clearly, I've been, uh, as you can tell from my advanced years, I've been around Washington long enough so that I always hold up my judgment uh, for a while and see how something works out many laws that we thought were going to be terrific didn't turn out. And some little line in one law that nobody paid attention turns out to be. But I would think that the following, we could hope for the following types of influence. One, there will be this pool, and they have to, under the statute, in 180 days, which is going to, I can't remember when it ends, but very soon it ends, they have to designate a pool of five outside attorneys, meaning that they are not in, from inside the government, uh, to uh, be available for appointment for uh, designated cases that uh, are left somewhat to the discretion, but there is a standard, novel, and if they raise novel, and I can't remember the rest of the phrase, issues. Um, and as we see, they've already done it uh, in one. And what it means then is that you have outside of the intelligence community and even outside of us who are not in the intelligence community but sort of of it, you will have a, uh, and these will probably be very good lawyers. I'm sure that they won't be picked unless they are prominent <laughs> members of the bar. And so you'll have a different component out there which will know what's going on in the FISA court. And they will be privy to, uh, they will have to be privy certainly to uh, any of the information that's involved in the case that's relevant to whatever issue they've been asked to be 
uh, an amicus on. So you'll have a sort of a different uh, new component out there which knows what's going on. Because one of the great problems of the NGO community, which has done a great deal of terrific work, but one of their great problems is they are not, uh, they are not accessible, they are not accessed to the classified information. And sometimes when we're looking at a program, I keep thinking, oh my god, the argument of somebody outside would be so different if they knew what was going on here. So I think that uh, having a small but uh, adept uh, group out there which does understand how the court works and even what it's working on will hopefully make a difference. Um, you also mentioned uh, technical in your question, yes. and I think that's an important um, part of uh, the board's recommendation is that it's important for the court to get technical advice um, and expertise. We just heard from the panel with Stephanie and Steve um, how incredibly technically complex these issues are. Uh, and so now, again, under the USA Freedom Act, the court has the ability um, to get um, amicus support not only from lawyers uh, but from technologists. And it's something that our board uh, has recognized the importance of. We have three technologists on staff who help us both with our internal facing technology challenges as well as uh, our analysis of programs, and we expect to expand that capability in the near future. So I think having both legal and technical arguments before the FISA court will be a, a huge improvement. Right, absolutely. And just one little caveat I think that some people have had with these Amici is that um, maintaining their independence might be a challenge just because part of the nature of the job is that you need to get these security clearances, which comes with um, sort of non-disclosure policies. And I've spoken with some people in the civil liberties community who have said that they've needed to actually turn down the job because um, it would impact their work following because of uh, dealing with classified documents. And also, there's been some concern that the role of the actual Amici is limited, that um, they won't be asked to consult on everything, only certain matters, and that they won't have access to everything, maybe. Um, so do you think that there will be a challenge to maintain that independence? And do you see any kind of remedy for that issue? You go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, our recommendation was that they be made avail that they be given availability to all of the information that was involved in um, whatever the their designated assignment was. I do not know whether that is uh, going to be followed or is being followed. Uh, I simply don't know, but it uh, was our recommendation that they should be given access to be on. I can sympathize with the people that don't want to take that because despite, again, my advanced age, you know, our, we call it the sort of till death do us part kind of thing when you sign that paper saying, I'm never going to the day I die tell anybody uh, about anything, but um, there are a lot of people that have left the intelligence community, <coughs> I mean, le legitimately left it <coughs> as well. So I'm sure that, again, um, I think it would be useful to have the more people on the outside know, uh, even if there are restrictions on how they can use their knowledge, the better. <coughs> and in terms of recruiting people, um, it, I mean, it is a challenge once you get a clearance, you have um, ongoing obligations, uh, pre-publication review, um, and so forth. But there have been advisory committees that the intelligence agencies have operated with outsiders coming in, both academics and advocates who have had to get clearances and have been willing to get clearances for that purpose. So hopefully, at least some academics and some advocates will decide on balance it's worth it to get inside the tent and see what's going on. and 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 benefit from that knowledge rather than having to challenge something where it's a bit of a black box, you don't really know what's going on. And considering uh, all I know, I have no idea who are going, going to be appointed <clears throat> by uh, the FISA court, but I do know that uh, we were asked by the judges to make uh, in, in our individual board member capacities any recommendations for people, and the people that got in touch with me as uh, to make their availability known were really pretty high caliber people, both from some from the academics, some from the actual practice area. So I don't know. Uh, I, I would guess that there's, there are going to be some good people that will be available. Great. 
<laughs> so um, 2.15 was sort of lauded as a big success with okay. you guys. So now we can sort of move on to 7.02, the next report. And um, some sort of wrote following that report that you guys went easy on the NSA, um, found very little wrong with the programs. And some of privacy and civil liberties advocates have sort of criticized parts of the report. Um, I know there have been some dialogue about those criticisms, some responses, um, but I thought I'd bring up a few of those, whatever I have time for. Um, so first, the way we know that 702 works, uh, PRISM collects hundreds of millions of internet communications of targeted individuals directly from the servers of companies like Facebook and Skype, uh, while upstream sweeps up massive amount of communication, including voice, from um, the backbone cables of the internet, sort of. Um, so we know that some incidental collection of Americans' communications happen, although we don't know exactly how often that is, and um, I know people have continued to ask that, and that's still not been able to be discovered. Um, but there's also sort of the general concern, um, even though P-Club focused on how the actual queries of this information was very targeted, there are a lot of people who say, no, the actual seizure of the information happens much prior to that targeted query. Um, so in both of your opinion, when does the actual seizure occur, and do you still see that as a Fourth Amendment issue? Uh, well, I think there, uh, when we started looking at 702, we realized there was a lot of misunderstanding about how the program operates. And quite honestly, I think the European Court of Justice doesn't fully understand how the program operates on its decision striking down the safe harbor, because um, 702 is not a bulk collection program. We said that very clearly in our report. Uh, it's a targeted program. Uh, it, it has had a lot of targets. We reported about 90,000 targets, which is not insignificant, uh, but certainly given the billions of people on the planet spread throughout the world, um, it, it is still a tiny percentage of people uh, whose communications are being collected. Uh, the criteria is that the communications have to be of non-Americans, uh, not in the United States, uh, and there's foreign intelligence value. Uh, I'm, 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 we each have our own opinion, but I think the collection largely occurs at the time the, the it's determined that a particular selector, an email address, applies to a communication and it's brought in. Uh, the government has said from the beginning uh, that there are Fourth Amendment issues in that situation. Even though you're targeting non-Americans, you're still going to be collecting communications where an American is on the other side of the communication. There are efforts made to filter out American to American communications, but clearly one side of the conversation will be American. And that, that I think everyone agrees is, as a Fourth Amendment issue. We analyzed it uh, under a reasonableness standard, um, and the board's uh, unanimous position was that the program went right up to the line of constitutional reasonableness. Um, but the, you raised the question of queries of Americans' information, recognizing that those Americans didn't benefit from a probable cause determination or judicial approval for collection, um, Judge Wald and I dissented from the, the board's report um, and took the position um, that once you shift a focus from the non-American to the American, uh, and, and you may have had years of that American's emails or phone calls, uh, that there should be some judicial intervention uh, before the government um, is authorized to collect that information. And I think that's going to be a central issue um, in 702's reauthorization in 2017. Yeah, if, as one of the earlier speakers, I think it was the uh, representative of the EFF, said, I think that I agree uh, that that is the next big uh, issue in, in terms of the surveillance collection. Let me just go back a little bit. Oh, it, he, he talked about, <clears throat> he felt the collection was also a focal point. There, there is some difference, I think, between uh, the intelligence community and certain parts of the NGO, and we've gotten in the middle of this, kind of as to when privacy or civil liberties begin. Does it begin at the time the government gets your material, or does it only come into play later on if they had make use of it in some way, either through a query or maybe they immediately see that it's, uh, they can send it off to the FBI if it's evidence of crime or they can use it in some report, et cetera. Uh, I think among non-governmental groups, or at least many of them, uh, there is certainly, I found, among the um, kind of uh, literary artistic community especially, uh, because they've been more vocal about it than some of the others. There's a strong <clears throat> feeling, but it's echoed uh, in other places as well, 
just the act of having the government take your information, even if it, they take it and from day one to day five, which is the typical aging out period when if they haven't used it, it sort of goes off into the nether Netherlands, that just having it there, it's availability for people to, for government agents to look at and to query um, is itself a, um, it's an intrusion upon the normal, uh, normalcy expectation of privacy, which can be justified. We, we don't suggest that 702, if you're collecting information on a targeted uh, foreign person who the FISA court says you have enough evidence to show that he or she is an agent of a foreign power or has foreign intelligence, yes, of course you are going to collect incidental information. If they, talk, if they have emails from their grandmother or from their doctor or perfectly innocent people, there's no question you know, it's going to be there. My particular take, and I think part of which was incorporated in David's and my dissent, is that when it gets in there, the information of the grandmother or the lover or whatever it is, look, if that on its face is foreign intelligence, okay. I mean, I'm content to say they got it legitimately, and if it's foreign intelligence, fact. But what has... I've never been able to reconcile myself is the notion that they don't have to make a decision about whether it's foreign intelligence or not before they keep it in there and even uh, before the NSA does, does ask its analysts to say, I think it's foreign intelligence, to query but they don't ever have to make that decision, and they don't make it. We've been told over and over again by the intelligence community that if it goes in there, it stays in there, unless it was, unless they got the wrong, as David said, unless they got a US person targeted by mistake or something. But if it's just a question, it just stays in there. And, be, and the, the, when this has been questioned, again and again, the answer is always, and there's a certain amount of reason to it, but it raises the question of where you draw the balance. The question is, well, look, <clears throat> okay, it looks innocent today, but how do you know? Three years from now, we might get another piece of information which might show that this piece of information had a certain foreign intelligence value and we can't afford to let it go. So as a result, you do get all this incidental US information and it's, it's of a, significant dimension. And it just stays there, and it can be queried by a US person indicator, even if at that point that no decision has been made that that US person indicator had any foreign intelligence fight. That's what bothers us. That would bother, that's what bothers some of the people in Congress. The House actually passed a much broader bill than we, uh, but it went no place in the Senate to stop this, what they call backdoor searches. But I do think you know, that whole notion, and especially as we move into the 12333, where you don't have any FISA person looking at it, whatever congressional oversight there is, and we're trying to find out what that is, um, we don't know, but it's sort of there. So that, that is kind of the, the philosophical uh, big question, I think, is waiting out there to answer. Is it? okay, if you legally collect it, that's the end. Or are there some constitutional or in the future statutory rights that US persons who didn't, were not the targets, whose information is collected, have not to have it kept in there for later query use, any kind of use? Sorry I went on so <laughs> That's okay, no problem. Um, so also, you briefly mentioned the uh, Schrems decision, the Safe Harbor decision. And I was curious, just in the sense of, of what seems like the gravity of that, the, the European court saying that the United States is not a safe harbor for information, you know, NSA, we don't buy that this isn't bulk collection. Um, first of all, do you feel like the government needs to consider more of um, these foreign citizens' privacy rights in light of this? And do you think that we need to consider reforming 702 more quickly, especially 
uh, with concern that American businesses will be impacted by this. Well, again, I, th I think the court seems to have based its decision on the original leaks, which I indicated uh, were somewhat misinterpreted about how the 702 program operated. That's one of the values I think our board has, is we can take an independent look and report back to the public on how these programs do operate. And again, we debunked the myth that it was a purely bulk collection program. It's actually a targeted program, which again, I don't think the court realized. So I think there may have been some sort of technical under even our factual misunderstandings that led to the court's decision. But at its core, the court is raising some fundamental concerns about privacy and how non-Americans' privacy rights are, be, are to be treated. And I think that should be a healthy debate uh, within the United States and internationally with the EU uh, as uh, how, should we be imp improving our privacy protections in the United States. There have been lots of proposals, including giving non-Americans rights to sue under the Privacy Act or um, our related legislation, which has some benefit. Um, uh, and, and likewise, have a dialogue with the Europeans because uh, in, it's a two-way street. The, you know, we have uh, judicial oversight of our surveillance activities uh, in some areas. If you look at some European countries, they don't. Um, and so uh, I think it's fair to, to shine the light on them as well. Um, we're not aware of any PCLOBs in Europe, which are independent agencies that have full access to the intelligence community and can report publicly. Um, so I, th I think, it, I think it, the, the court will hopefully trigger a very valuable dialogue about how we can we improve privacy on both sides of the Atlantic. Great. Um, so sort of looking back on these reports, we can also look back on um, your recommendation assessment report on the one-year anniversary of the 215 report and the six-month anniversary of the 702 report. And um, I kind of just want to gauge quickly how you both feel about um, the effectiveness of your recommendations looking back and which areas you'd like to see more on. Specifically, I know that um, the recommendations mentioned that the government hasn't yet developed a methodology to assess the value of these counterterrorism programs. Um, so how, how do you feel about the progress of those things? Um, well, we issued a uh, status report on our 22 recommendations under both the 215 and 702 report um, last January. Um, and I, I, I think we saw that um, the government did a very good job uh, in many cases, but there were some incompletes um, or uh, uh, and, and some areas where the government hadn't accepted our recommendation. I think we've moved forward um, since then, obviously, on the 215 recommendations of shutting down bulk collection and the, and the amicus and the uh, special advocate in the FISA court. Those have been implemented um, since then through legislative matters. Um, in the 702 context, we made some structural suggestions about how to improve whether there is a foreign intelligence value in articulating that. Um, uh, having minimization procedures developed. And, and our understanding is that those are actually moving forward, and we expect um, that the government will incorporate a number of these um, when it sets forward new minimization procedures under 702. Um, on the efficacy point, uh, I think there may have been some confusion, but the government has now accepted um, that it's important to analyze efficacy and develop methodology for analyzing efficacy as well. Um, so I, I think we've, we've uh, I say most or all, have, have been accepted and are, are well on the way to implementation. Great. And uh, Judge Wall, did you have any further concerns about that? No, I think David's covered it, and I've covered the uh, FISA ones. I've, right. um, as former judge, I'll look at those with great interest as they come up. We did have um, <clears throat> some which we are told are being implemented. We haven't seen the final uh, version of implementation, one of which I'll just mention because there was the question 702 of uh, the FBI's use of the uh, FISA foreign intelligence for regular screening of non-intelligence crimes. If you're picked up in DuPont Circle or whatever <laughs> for something, then they can, if they, it's true. There are internal controls. You have to have had uh, uh, permission to access, but still at some level, it's available, This uh, all of the data that's been collected in the 702. And there are some people, I think this is gonna come up this afternoon in one of your panels, worry that this, and I mentioned this in our, uh, very briefly in our dissent, um, you worry a little bit about the fact that our criminal justice system has set up a number of um, warrant requirements, grand jury requirements, whether it's probable cause or reasonable, whatever, but they have, there are certain uh, 
parts, which some of which have constitutional bases, uh, et cetera. And so there is some concern about how far you can go in taking data which has been collected incidentally with no uh, prior RAS or anything else and, and then use it as a uh, screening technique to uh, accumulate more information, which if you had to get some of that information by yourself, some of it might be available by informers or something, but some of it would need some kind of a, a legal uh, passage. That's just an area. I don't know that there's an absolute one way or the other, but it's an area I think we have to keep our eyes on. Right, and it's definitely an area that I've been trying to find out more about myself. That's good so. luck. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think that we're all in the same position there. Of course, if we want that. to sign the to death do we part thing, I'm sure then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one of the aspects of the recommendations I wanted to mention is we talked about how we uh, oversee the programs and how we made recommendations about the FISA court. Uh, but another thing, a lesson that I think we've all learned is that if there had been greater transparency about how these programs operated, there would have been greater public acceptance and also democratic debate about what, how far a government should be going. And so we have, we've offered a number of recommendations on improving transparency. Uh, we've uh, urged the government to be more transparent about the number of requests they make uh, to companies, and that's been done to, to, to some extent, um, authorizing companies to make greater disclosures about the requests they receive from the government consistent with national security, and, and that's been done. Um, urge that the FISA court decisions be declassified and be written with the view, if we've talked to some of the judges, that, that admittedly in the past they thought these decisions would stay secret um, forever, uh, but now we know that there's a greater interest in transparency, so they should write the decisions with the view uh, that substantial portions of them uh, at least um, will be declassified going forward. So we understand better the reasoning uh, of the courts as to why these are, are, are not legitimate programs. And again, that's being done prospectively, um, and we also encourage that be done retroactively uh, on significant court decisions as well. Um, and the government, and that the government develop uh, principles of transparency, which is moving forward. So uh, I think that's an important aspect of this: is that 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 you know even between 215 and 702. Um, 702, at least people understood what it was about and what you were getting, and, and, and I think people thought there was much, it was, it was good that there was a democratic debate about that, whereas in contrast, 215 was really secret law. Maybe a few people understood what it was about, and one of the things our board called for is no more secret laws. Uh, there should be transparency when Congress acts to let the public know at least what authorities broadly speaking, are being given the government, even if sources and methods and some of the technical details are protected, we should understand what we're authorizing the intelligence community to do. I think we might just say a word about the current project. We can't say more than a word, but about the current project <laughs> that we're involved in is looking at aspects of Executive Order 12333, which governs the um, collection and the use of information that's done abroad and concerns primarily uh, foreign persons, but does pick up some incidental uh, US persons, because there um, you have no FISA court, whatever your view of FISA court is. Um, I don't know of any, I guess the Senate does have oversight, but we certainly haven't seen any public uh, discussions emanating from that oversight, so it's sort of out there. And I certainly came up uh, during the Snowden revelations. Um, but that's, uh, that's another area which we'll see. Right, for sure. And I, I was just going to move us on to finally what's sort of coming next, which is your report on uh, 12333. And I obviously can't say too much about what's still classified, um, what's still being uh, put into the report. Um, but on April 8th, the board had a public meeting sort of announcing the plan to conduct this investigation, which gave sort of a little bit more framework into that. And I would love if both of you could just sort of reiterate um, some of the general areas of concern that, that you're working on in that report, just so people who don't know can, can hear about that. I'm sure. Uh, under, again, as Executive Order 12333 was issued by President Reagan, and it governs the operations of the entire intelligence community. It's not a program. It's not a specific activity. It's an overall authority 
uh, under which the intelligence community operates. And we thought that was an important next thing to look at in our progression of the statutory authorities and then presidential authority. Um, so we're going to be doing um, two levels of activity. One is a public report um, along the lines of the prior reports we've done to have a greater explanation to the public of, how, of what 12333 is. It's a little mysterious. Um, and reading it doesn't always help you. Uh, and we're trying to, so we're going to try to explain what 12333 is all about to have, again, greater understanding. Uh, but in terms of doing that, we also wanted to, to look at the ground level and see how it's working. And so we've identif we're, I've identified some deep dives or uh, in the process of doing so to look at particular activities of the CIA and the NSA um, for two reasons. One is to see if they validate our understanding of 12333 or they're at odds with it and, and we want to understand how 12333 translates on the ground. Um, but then also we want to look at those particular activities as well um, as part of our oversight function and report back uh, uh, to the President and Congress on those also. Um, so we hope um, early next year to have a, the public report out and um, uh, the uh, deep dive activities may be, be partially or entirely classified depending on um, uh, our, our efforts to try to explain them to the public at least at a high level if not a detailed level because they, they're ongoing activities. So we, the only thing I'd add to that is that uh, you know the Fourth Amendment about which most of the internal ACLU cases that you've heard discussed earlier have focused on some aspect of the uh, two parts of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment, if it applies at all, it's minimal outside of the US where 12333. So you don't even have the same constitutional framework that you do, which makes you don't have any outside lookers, and you don't have a const same constitutional framework. So um, it's a big subject. Yeah, we, as part of this effort, we held a public workshop at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia uh, and, and had some panels discussing um, constitutional, like separation of powers. Is, uh, this is, these are 12333 are not statutorily authorized activities. Right. They're under the president's inherent powers. Um, and the question becomes, should there be judicial oversight um, or should there be legislative uh, activity? And of course, in the course of doing this, just in the last year, Congress on its own uh, enacted the Intelligence Authorization Act and imposed time limits of five years, years for, for just certain for kinds, certain kinds of, of uh, information retention, um, but, but didn't seem to be hesitate, even though it was invading a space that some might have viewed as presidential authority, uh, but now has imposed this uh, time restriction. So. There's some interesting constitutional issues, but also as a result of that, oversight issues, uh, since the courts and the Congress are, are not involved, at least in authorizing or reviewing particular activities. Great. You should always remember there are, how many people do we have total in the office now, David, not counting the administrative staff, but 10 staff people? Yeah, 10 or 15. And, and, and board members. NSA alone has 30,000 employees. <laughs> That's only one of 17 agencies. And there are 17 intelligence components. We're supposed so. to be looking at. It's a lot of work <laughs> for not many people. Part time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so just kind of one more quick question for you, Judge Wald, before we move it and open it up to questions. Um, in your statement on April 8th, you wrote that Peak Lab needs to remember its status as an independent body, which works within the executive branch um, and reports to Congress, but is still an independent oversight body. Um, I'm just curious whether or not, especially in your upcoming work, if you've experienced sort of any roadblocks in that effort to be independent um, that sort of one made you want to issue that statement and um, kind of how you all work on, on dealing with that issue. Uh, no, I think, and David should um, weigh in on this too, I think that the intelligence community has been up to now pretty cooperative with us. Uh, that's not to say you don't have sometimes negotiation. Do you really need all 100 of those documents or would 50 do, you know, the, but the normal kind of. However, um, you know, it, it, if anybody who deals with any bureaucracy, and the intelligence community is certainly a, a, a bureaucracy of sorts, um, you do have to try to build a relationship with them while they know your oversight still, uh, you know, they're not going to say, we will just give you exactly what you ask for and not one bit more. That's a kind of uh, <clears throat> phenomenon that you try to avoid. I'm not sure whether we avoid it at all times. And there's other, the other thing is, uh, 
the rate of compliance. They're busy, and they're busy with a primary purpose, which is to find the terrorists, <clears throat> not to help us oversight them finding the terrorists. <clears throat> so inevitably, the speed with which you can get um, records uh, coming in, but I don't, I don't know of any um, direct efforts that have ever been made. But, and and they, that was not the reason that I put that in. I just wanted, since this is a public statement, I want to keep emphasizing to people outside because we do get sometimes the reaction. Okay, I know you're independent like some of the independent agencies are already, but look, you're in there, you know the secrets, you sign the till death do us part uh, thing, so how can we really um, you know, expect that we will be totally independent? I think we will, although, again, I point out we are a bipartisan board and we don't always agree, as you can tell from 215, 702 uh, reports. There were some issues on which we did not uh, agree. Um, I, I agree with Pat's comment. I mean, we, our, our board status is almost a non sequitur, which is we're an independent agency in the executive yes, branch. Yes, I know. That's what I say. Uh, There's nothing like us. Really. Uh, but I, but I actually, I tend to think of it as a plus uh, in the way we're described, because on the, in the executive branch part, it means that we have access to deliberative information, classified information, privileged information, um, whereas if we were outside the government or outside of the executive branch, we might not be able to see. So we are, uh, there's certainly negotiations and challenges sometimes in collecting information, uh, but there's never, uh, there never interposed the objection that we can't No, see nobody it. ever said don't do that. Right, and so I think, that, I think that's critical for our functioning is that we get to have access and discussions with the people who are making decisions and the lawyers uh, about what they're up to. Uh, but by the same token, independence is critical and the degree of independence is not actually written in our statute, but we had negotiations early on with the Obama administration, and they acknowledged that we have what's called essentially legislative bypass, which means we don't have to clear our views with OMB. Um, and we met with the president uh, on the 215 report and had a very lively discussion of the legal issues, and we walked out of the room and we voted to say that the program was illegal. The same day, the White House issued a statement saying they thought the program was legal. Um, so as an executive branch agency, we did not have to, we were independent, um, and we could express our own views even if they were odd, at odds with the president. So I think, I think both aspects of our status uh, help contribute to doing the job. It must have been an interesting day. <laughs> All right, well, um, I think that it's about time to move it to questions. And as we stated in the previous panels, please state your name and affiliation and uh, wait for the microphone to come to you. Um, if you could raise your hand. Uh, the gentleman in the back. Uh, hello again. I'm Gus Alzona. I'm with the Maryland Republican Party, an elected a, a party official, too, in addition to what I said earlier. Um, <laughs> my uh, question uh, is this, is um, what it, it, do you all have jurisdiction over uh, possible uh, privacy and civil liberties uh, issues with uh, state and local governments who may be engaging in that? If, if not, well, where can an ordinary citizen go to um, if there are some concerns or possible issues with uh, their respective state and local governments in terms of um, unwarranted or illegal uh, intelligence gathering? Yeah, our jurisdiction is limited to federal counterterrorism programs, so we would not have jurisdiction over state and local governments. Um, in terms of those governments, I think it's going to depend on the entity. Sometimes there are oversight, uh, citizens oversight boards, there are attorneys general, um, there's the press, there's the legislature. I think it's hard to, to generalize um, how to raise concerns, but our, our jurisdiction is limited to uh, federal counterterrorism programs, not even necessarily limited to the intelligence community. Uh, they, they could be a non-intelligence component, but it has to be part of the federal government. Thanks. Uh, right here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Bill Binney. I'm a former NSA employee. Uh, I've worked there for about 37 years. Uh, and some of the material that's come out from Edward Snowden has concerned me, especially the things like the muscular program, which is the unilateral fiber optic taps between the data centers of uh, Cisco and various other companies that are involved in the PRISM program, uh, where they're taking all the data be team being passed between those data centers. Did your board look at any of that? 
Also, did you ever look at the, any of the Fairview program, which is the 70 to 80, 100, to 80 to between 80 and 100 fiber optic taps inside the United States where they're collecting data? Uh, Mark Klein exposed one of those centers in San Francisco. And in the end, if you looked at that and, they, and you got answers from NSA or any, anybody else, CIA or FBI also looks at that data, uh, <clears throat> did you have a way of verifying that what they told you was true? Uh, needless, uh, needless to say, um, I appreciate your question, and um, consistent with our obligations on uh, classified information, we're not at liberty to discuss particular programs, uh, uh, but we did a, a, what I think was a thorough examination under 215 and 702. Um, we asked lots of questions. We got answers to all the questions we asked, um, but I can't get into the details of what programs that remain verify? classified. Could you verify their answers? Um, what do you mean by verify? I, I think it's a cha I mean, the, the question is, can we verify their answers? Uh, I think that's a challenge uh, that, that any oversight body faces. Um, you know, yeah, the reason I ask is because uh, uh, Judge Reggie Walton, the former chief judge of the FISA court, came out with an interview of CNN and said he had no way of really verifying what NSA or CIA or FBI were telling them. Right. I mean, I, I, I think it's a challenge. I mean, at least the way I, I've approached it is that we hear from a lot of different people um, in different organizations uh, and different departments, review documents, um, and have to draw our own conclusion if, if what we're getting is consistent information um, or not. We've had times when we know we've challenged an agency and, and we've gotten better or, or even different answers that they've clarified the record. So, uh, I mean, we, we've tried to be as rigorous as we can. Is it perfect? I don't think an oversight IG or anyone else can be Perfect, but we certainly have not accepted one person's statement as always being the final word. So could one of your, so one of your recommendations be that uh, there is a technical team that's assigned to you or to the courts or to the Congress that has the authority to go into NSA, FBI, or CIA and look into their databases and see exactly what they've got and how much of it is uh, consistent with what they're telling you? Well, as I, as I mentioned, we, we have three technologists on our staff. We expect to expand that capability. We've encouraged, um, and Congress has, has approved, having the court have access to technologists as well. And I think they should be able to, to take a look at uh, the raw data or the systems uh, to make sure they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I would just add, I, I recognize Judge Walton's uh, dilemma, and I think it's even more so, perhaps, for uh, somebody at the FISA court. Uh, level, which is still, even though it's not a regular court, I mean, it's, but we, it's, it is pretty hard to figure out where you would, I got your, the essence of your question, where you would go beyond the person or the agency that gave you. But I do, I do think you can, and we have done some efforts in that way to, for instance, in the two, when we were collecting 215, I mean, if, if we didn't like if we weren't happy with the first answers to a particular question, to go back and insist that you get more detail or insist that you talk to somebody, the actual person who's running the operation. I don't know how much you can go beyond that. I mean, we're certainly open to if investigative reporters want to come see us and tell us information, but there aren't too many outside sources we have not found. Uh, and I mean, whistleblowing is a dangerous uh, uh, business. I mean, one example is uh, the FBI had some description of its procedures in yep. writing, um, and on, on investigation, we found that those procedures weren't consistent with what they were actually doing. In fact, um, in, tr in uh, particular, um, pinging the availability of FISA data. Um, and so, one of our recommendations, uh, which was accepted, is that they clarify that their procedure and make their procedures consistent with their actual practice. So that's an area where we didn't accept just the written description. Through conversations, we we concluded that it wasn't consistent, and, and they made a change. Uh, I, I get it's, it's a constant challenge, but uh, um, that's, that's our job to try to figure that out. OK. Um, right here. Switch it up. Hi, I'm Brad Whitehead. I'm chief scientist with Formularity. Um, in many ways, it seems like there's an overlap between the FISA court and your own responsibilities. Um, obviously, yours are more broad. but and you seem a little bit critical of the FISA court. Um, where did they go wrong? Is it administrative pressure? 
Is it just the anonymity and the, the lack of having to explain their decisions? And what can we do in the future to correct the situation? Should you all become the FISA court? <laughs> I would place the largest component of, I won't say gone wrong, but where they fell short, I guess, uh, in the structure, the, con the whole concept of the court, for which, as I say, I was, I was there when it went through the Justice Department. So we were all living in a different era. Um, the fact that I, you know, I don't see how you can ever have discussion or judgment on a constitutional issue or on a legal issue, which is what they are supposed to be deciding compliance with the statute is basically what they're doing until you hear both sides of the subject. It's just a, such a sort of a, an intrinsic, like it's in the DNA of the judicial process that you, you hear both sides. So in that sense, I think that that's where the majority of the, because we read, we read the stuff that was submitted to them in earlier 215 decisions, and it was very, you read it, it was very lawyer-like, and it was very persuasive, and yes, it sounds fine, and then, but then when somebody gets into it and, and attempts, as one of our first staff people did, to do a critique on that, to give the other side of it, you say, oh my God, uh, et cetera. So that's part of it. Secondly, yes, I will say outright, I think a few of the, FISA court judges in this earlier period did probe, and they did go after the agency if they thought they uh, had either misstated or uh, hadn't given them adequate information. I think some of those FISA opinions have been published, Judge Bates's, et cetera, and there are a few others that were very good. But there were a lot of judges. The FISA court judges come in for uh, a couple of them are here from the district, but others come in from other parts. They only do this for part of their time. They have their regular court docket there. They are not, you know, specialists by any means. And I think they did kind of, um, in my view, kind of accept the um, kind of prima facie validity of the government's uh, need and the fact the government does a very uh, competent job of making uh, their case. If you read only that, I probably might have done the same same thing, although I might have asked a few more probing questions. I, I think um, our board uh, serves an, another value from what the FISA court does, which is the FISA court's charged with doing a legal and constitutional analysis, which we're also charged with doing. But we're also look, uh, charged with looking at policy issues. Yeah. Um, what I, I review is the OMG standard, which is even if something is completely legal, are you seriously going to do this? And how will you explain this if it becomes public? Which I think the agencies learned uh, from Snowden is that nobody stepped back and said, you know, this is crazy that we're collecting all millions of Americans' <laughs> phone records. Um, and, and that's not a judicial decision if, if Congress had written a law that authorized it, which we don't think it did. But even if they had, I think there's a room for it. Uh, internally, uh, folks like Becky Richards and the other privacy and civil liberties officers within the agencies, and as an independent oversight board, for us to step back and say, this is just bad policy. Uh, it's not, it's, it may not be effective. It is a tremendous intrusion on privacy and civil liberties. Uh, as with the 215 program, there's actually a better way of doing it that's, that's more efficient, which is going making targeted requests and protects privacy and civil liberties. So sometimes you know, there may be a, 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 trying to accomplish the same goals, but in a more privacy and civil liberties protective way. And that's where I think a board like ours comes into play. It's not, we're not constrained by legal and constitutional principles. Uh, we, can, we can make uh, essentially legislative or policy advice, um, and which we're very glad to see was adopted. So I, I, th I think that that's, uh, I agree with all of that, and especially in light of one of the earlier panels which said, I would really like to see everybody, the courts be able to uh, deal with all of these things. I'd like to see the courts take a more uh, aggressive position vis-a-vis -vis standing, et cetera, myself. But I would still point out that even if that were true, the courts have a limited function. The courts have the function of deciding is this thing legal under the statute or constitutional. And I think the Second Circuit decision, which I loved, I mean, uh, Jerry Lynch, who wrote it, uh, I thought it was superb, and especially we liked the whole paragraphs from our PCLAB report, which were put into the opinion. But they have to stop at the point, and that came up in the discussion you had with the first panel. They have to say, 
this was illegal. Okay, they could have enjoined, I mean, if, had they wished to, they could have issued an injunction, but they sort of said, no, look, our function is to decide it's illegal. There's a new statute now. It's going to go into operation. Uh, and so it left that period, which, of course, uh, somebody's going to run in and start another lawsuit and you know keep going on that. But their function is very limited. They cannot, uh, the courts, once they've decided something is unconstitutional or it is illegal, they cannot give recommendations on how it should be changed. So I think that no matter how uh, much more involved the courts get into it, it's never going to take the place of somebody who has a dual function of being able to say to them, OK, maybe what you did, it's, it's on the line. Legally, we can't say it's illegal. We can't say it's unconstitutional. But it's unnecessary. You don't need it. Right. And uh, with that, I think we're all out of time. Uh, thank you for your questions. And thank you to David Medine and, and Judge Wald. Mm -hmm. <laughs>